thank you, Lawson. I'm going to sneak behind so that I'm touching Rob's nose as I'm preaching. Welcome, everybody. My name is Tom. Uh, thank you, Lawson. Cheers. Thank you, brother. All right. If uh, you are visiting with us for the first time today, special welcome. Lovely to have you here. Uh, you've joined us um, as we uh, continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. And today's a very uh, significant time. We're uh, continuing the series through the Gospel of Matthew, but we are finishing a very significant uh, number of chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. That is the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're hearing Jesus' concluding uh, thoughts to his whole sermon today. Uh, before we jump into this, I'm just going to pray and ask that God would lead us. Father, we uh, come before you now and ask desperately for your help. I need your help. We need you to be our help. And so we ask by your Spirit that today you would open up our eyes that we may see wonders in your word and incline our hearts toward you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to uh, just reorient everyone back to um, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm just going to give a brief recap of uh, this sermon. And so if you, uh, as best as you can, try and put yourself in the shoes of some first century hearers in Palestine, You've heard about this new teacher that has a lot of hype about him. Uh, he's started uh, giving a few sermons. In one of his, his very first sermons, he causes a bit of a, a ruckus about the people. He basically takes uh, one of the main promises in the Old Testament of God's restorative work. It was given in Isaiah 61. And Jesus basically says, this is fulfilled in me. All of the Old Testament was pointing to me, and I've come to fulfill it. And then he says to those very hearers, oh, and by the way, you're all going to reject me, which they didn't really like to hear because then they tried to stone him, and he escaped. And so there's already a lot of excitement about this teacher, and he goes on and he starts performing miracles and healing people, and uh, he's got a good following, and now he, he goes to this mountain, and he starts teaching. And he starts uh, giving all of these um, radical teachings that are a very different way of life. So if you imagine you're here in the first century, you're under Roman occupation, you're in a, a culture where the strongest and the fittest survive and the poor and the weak are pushed out to the fringes of society as outcasts. And in this context, all of a sudden Jesus starts saying, the poor receive the kingdom of heaven. The meek inherit the earth. Those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness will be blessed. He takes all of these uh, cultural ideas and he flips them on their head. And he goes on to explain that his followers will be salt of the earth and light to the world. And these people who are listening to this sermon, who are good uh, Jews will know their scriptures and they'll be hearing echoes of God's promise in Isaiah 49 where God talks about this servant figure in Isaiah and he says this, this servant of Israel will be a light to the nations. 
And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, oh, and you guys are going to be a light to the nations. You're going to be a light to the world. And if these people hadn't already started making connections to another significant moment in their history, in Israel's history, which occurred on a mountain where God's laws were being given, you might think of Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments and many other laws were given, people hadn't already made that connection Jesus makes it very clear when he himself is on a mountain and he starts taking those very laws and he starts applying them to a deeper way to our hearts as he says things like you've heard that you shall not murder but I say if you're even angry with someone you've already committed murder in your heart as he shows that the problem is our sick hearts and he gives these instructions which if you, you listen to them they're extremely difficult to abide by. And he starts to explain that his followers won't be like everyone else. So his followers won't do good deeds to be seen by other people. They won't store up materialistic treasure on earth because they'll have treasure in heaven. They won't worry about food or clothing like everyone else. And again, the good students of their scriptures would hear echoes of God's constant call to Israel to not be like the nations, to be set apart, to be different, to be holy. And as he uh, finishes this teaching, which is almost the complete opposite to the way of life, both then and, to be honest, now, and he finishes by making this black and white. He kind of like narrows it down to, to two ways, two options to respond to this. There's a wide and destructive path that leads to death, and many will find it. And then there's a straight and narrow path that leads to life, and few will find it. This is our context now. And if you haven't already seen enough allusions to the way God relates to his people Israel in the Old Testament. This is uh, made even more clearer now as Jesus finishes this sermon by giving these two paths. And you might think of Deuteronomy 30, where when God has already given these commands, he saved the people out of Israel. And right before they're about to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 30, he says, I set before you life and death. Right? You can either listen to these commands of mine and you can follow them, which is a path that leads to life. Or you can disobey them and follow this path that leads to death. And Jesus says the exact same thing here. He says you can either hear these words and do them, or you can hear these words and not do them. And he chooses to, to uh, finish this off by giving a parable, which is just a story that is illustrating something. And in verse 24, he starts this parable. And he gives this picture of uh, these two men who are building houses. One is wise, one is foolish. We don't know whether the houses are identical or different. That's not the point. The point is in what is actually unseen. So the difference lies in what is unseen in this story. That is the foundation. So you've got these two houses that appear to be the same. But one has a foundation that is a rock. And when a storm comes, that house is stable and withstands the barrage of the storm. The other foundation is sand. And when the storm comes, it's easily washed away. And so what he is saying is that there is a foundation for our life that we can have, 
which is rock-like in strength. And it's able to withstand the storms and floods of life. Alternatively, there is a foundation, another foundation that we can have, which on surface level appears to be the same as that first house until the storm comes, until the storms and rain and floods of life come and it's easily swept away and it reveals the foundation to be one that is flimsy, unstable and dangerous. And so the question, of course, that we have to ask in response to this is what is our life built upon? What is the foundation? What is it that you place your hope and trust in? And so you might be here today and not call yourself a Christian. And I would just ask you to consider what the foundation of your life is. What is it that you actually place your trust, your hope, your values in? In today's society, a common foundation that people will uh, live by is this idea of the good life. You know, you might call it like the Australian dream or the American dream, just this Western idea of a good life, of having a good job, family, holidays, having savings, a retirement plan. And that's what makes you feel safe. That's your foundation. Right, but that means that your foundation is entirely dependent upon all of these external circumstances, entirely dependent upon your job continuing to go well, upon you having family, upon you having that savings plan. It's dependent upon all of these fickle things. We've just seen over the last several months how more than 2 million Australians have lost their jobs, have probably lost what their foundation was, their savings is gone. The, the storm of, of COVID-19 has unfortunately demonstrated that many built their life on a foundation of sand. And it was easily swept away the moment this picture of the good life just disappeared, along with everyone's freedom and all of the toilet paper in Australia. Or for some people, I think this is actually more common, their foundation is this idea of a social utopia, like this perfect society. And that's what we're striving towards. This is the belief where we can create a perfect society if we simply condition people to think in an enlightened way. You might have heard the term in a woke fashion, like that's being enlightened you know, to the, the knowledge of the day. And this is where we increasingly see people passionate about justice-related issues. Because the idea is that if we remove all oppression and injustice of society, we can create this utopia. This is the secular idea of heaven. This perfect society where everyone gets along. If we just remove all of the ignorant and intolerant people of society, we will create a just society to live in. We will create heaven on earth. And the problem with this secular utopia myth is that with no objective moral standards, that is no law or instruction for life given that is not influenced by feelings that only God can give, without that, it's simply subjective. And we've seen that we're more divisive than ever. And with increasing subjectivity in education, we have generations of children who are taught to just simply follow their feelings and with this, we're left with 
generations of people with excessive emotionalism toward justice-related issues, but completely insufficient and inadequate reasoning skills to actually listen to an alternative view and think about it rationally. And so what happens is they just shout people down. Whether it's adding those exclamation marks on Facebook in an argument or actually just shouting someone down because they can't actually reason with them. Because they've been told their feelings are always right. And so by all accounts, if we look at this uh, secular social utopia, it's more of a dystopia. We're more dysfunctional than ever as a society. And the point is that these foundations are beginning to crack. And the foundations that we still think are stable are only stable because God and his grace has not allowed a storm to come and sweep that away. Remember that the houses in this parable appear to be the same until the storm comes along. Or you might say that you're a Christian. But is the foundation of your life genuinely Jesus? Or is it simply the idea that with Jesus, you don't have to go to hell? Sounds pretty convenient to me. Or as we spoke about last week, maybe it's what Jesus can give you. Maybe Jesus is a means to an end for you. Health, wealth, a a community that will support your needs, maybe that's your foundation. And so if you say Jesus is your foundation, are you a doer of the word? That's what Jesus is saying here. Are you a doer of the word? Or, as James, who was Jesus' half-brother in his letter, describes people who are not doers of the word, are you like someone who looks at themselves in a mirror intently and then looks away And the moment they look away, they forget what they look like. That's the epitome of foolishness. And that's what someone who is not a doer of the word is described as in the Bible. So these are the people who neglect to follow through in obedience to God's word. And last week, we we saw how obedience and discipline, that is making practices, making lifestyles that are consistent with God's word, we saw how those are essential to discipleship. But me simply telling you to do this without getting to the heart of the problem would be like me uh, you know, trying to get a car to start when it has no engine. You can't just take Nike's advice and just do it. The heart of the problem is the problem of our heart. And this is the point of the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 5 to 7 that we've just gone through. This is the the point of it. Not that we treat this as a list of morals to abide by, although it most certainly is good morals to live by and they should be followed, but there is a deeper issue. And so we have to see this sermon, we have to see everything that Jesus talks about as the picture of perfect obedience that is required of God's people that is fulfilled in Christ as the only one who could live in perfect obedience to it because our hearts were dead to obedience. And so it's through this perfect Savior that we are restored, renewed, and able to live in obedience because He has broken off the shackles of sin that left us unable to be obedient. This is the point of the sermon. So we don't disregard obedience. We don't disregard that these are things to follow but we realize that the means by which we are obedient is through Christ. 
So the point is not that you have to be obedient. The point is through Christ you get to be obedient. You couldn't do it before. And the starting place of obedience is the foundation of the rock. So what we do will depend upon this foundation. So now we're going to draw back in on this parable. What is this rock? What is Jesus trying to say here with this rock, this solid foundation that is synonymous with being doers of the word? Uh, You don't have to turn here, but in Matthew 16, it's a a very famous passage. This is where uh, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And and some of his disciples say, uh, well, some say, are you Elijah? Others say, um, you know, John the Baptist or Jeremiah or some of the prophets. And Jesus says, no, but who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter makes this famous statement, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done, Peter. Flesh and blood haven't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And then he draws in on Peter's identity, and he says, you are Peter, which is the, the same word as rock, And Jesus says, and on this rock, I will build my church. The rock is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that which only God reveals to us. So the foundation of our life is that identity which is revealed to us by God in Christ. That is your foundation. And if we grasp this identity that is tied to other identities in the Bible, being a treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, if we grasp this identity, then we will show this in deeds that are grounded in an immovable identity. And this is the problem with our society. See, in our society, identity is dependent upon function, upon what you do. So that's why when you meet someone and you might ask, what, what do you do? And they'll say, well, I'm a plumber or I'm a teacher. We don't use the kind of language to say, well, I teach at my work or I plumb. We say, I'm a plumber. That's who I am. What I do is who I am. People's identity is in their achievements or social status. And so we don't have a firm identity that is able to withstand new cultural shifts or failures of life. And so we have to keep doing things to try and affirm our identity. We have to be that person that we say we are to to, to make sure we solidify this identity. And so if your identity is in other people's affirmation of you, if you're a bit of a people pleaser or you need people to be around you, you will always need to be doing things that are recognized or praised for your identity to be secure. Or if your identity is in being a good, supportive friend, you know, that kind of saviour figure, like that, that rock that your friends can depend upon, you'll actually need people to go through crises and breakdowns in their lives for you to have your identity. And what will happen is you will end up intentionally or unintentionally creating those crises in their life so that you can sweep in and be that supportive friend. But here... Our identity is given to us through someone else's achievement. That's how we receive our identity. Our identity is not dependent upon what we do, but upon what Christ does. 
and it's given before anything we do. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that you may walk in them. The point is you're created in Christ before you start to walk in these deeds, before you start to become doers of the word which God prepared before all eternity. You're created in Christ first to then walk in those deeds which God has in store for you. But the point is you are in Christ before you do any of those things. See, being and doing, so being who we are and doing what we do, they are inextricably linked, right? They're joined together, but being always precedes doing. Being is your identity, and that identity is the rock. That's the solid foundation. Who you are in Christ, what you do will flow out of who you are. This is why Paul brings the Corinthian church when they're in all sorts of sexual immorality, doing terrible, terrible things. And he says to them, hey, don't you realize who you are? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why are you doing these sort of things? Don't you know who you are? You shouldn't do these things because of who you are. That's your identity. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, don't engage in all sorts of sexual immorality. This must be the foundation of your life in light of what Christ has done, this renewed and restored identity. It's a solid rock. It survives storms. See, if your identity is this rock of Christ, if that's the foundation of your life, it will not be threatened by the next cultural shift or change of circumstance, whether the storm of life is death, sickness, job loss, relationship breakdown. These are not what gave you your identity, so they have no impact on you losing your identity. The only thing that does is the one who gave it, and we have sure and steadfast promises that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Your identity is secure. I'm going to give some final application and implications now in light of God's mission for his church, which is everything we're called to be and to do. That's how we should understand our mission in light of God's mission, right? Everything that we're called to be and to do from God. I'm going to draw particular applications to our society, to Australia. See, there is a weight and responsibility in accepting this identity, this identity that Jesus talks about. To live on the rock of Christ, you must accept this radical way of life that is vastly different to anything else in this world. See, in verse 28, at the end of this parable, at the end of this sermon, the crowds are astonished because Jesus teaches as one with authority. So they were dumbfounded. That's that's what this word is saying. You know, even in such a, a radical message, Jesus truly believed what he was saying and he demanded loyalty to his teaching. This reaction of astonishment from the crowd doesn't necessarily mean that they were willing to follow him or even that they agreed with him. It just means that they couldn't believe what he was saying. It does mean, however, that they realized there was something vastly different 
about this teacher and what he was asking of his people than anyone else who had gone before him. He taught as one who demanded attention. You know, I'm amazed at how many people, both Christian and non-Christian, love the Sermon on the Mount for its good morals, its right teaching. Yet, they will pick and choose what they will follow or they'll deny other fundamental truths of the Bible. But Jesus doesn't speak as a scribe of the day, it says here later on. He doesn't speak like someone trying to tickle your ear and say what you want to hear. Or he doesn't speak as someone who's lumping heavy burdens on you out of a place of insecurity or hypocrisy, which was generally what the, the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the day did. He speaks as one having authority. He speaks as the God of the universe and the supreme judge who demands complete loyalty and who will call every single one to account. And so we must accept this identity as one given from the king who reigns over every square inch of this earth and who has authority over every aspect of our lives. And there are important aspects of this identity which, which I believe we have to understand to navigate our current culture, which is a post-Christian culture. You know, we had a society that was built on Christian values. Christianity was in the schools and in government decisions. If they're long gone, we are a post-Christian society. Christianity is pushed to, to the margins of society. It's not involved in the public square, you would say. And see, our identity is as a marginal, unusual, and distinct people. Think about it. Jesus says we're salt and light. Salt and light are noticeable because they're, they're distinct from everything else. While everything is decaying, salt preserves. While darkness reigns, light comes in and penetrates and is vastly different from the darkness. Peter, in his letter, he refers to us as strangers and exiles or resident aliens. He says, you know, people who are not quite at home while they're at home. This is the pattern of Jesus' life. Like if you look at Jesus' life, his, his ministry, it was a marginal and distinct life where people were unable to box him in. He hung out with the rich socialites and with the poor outcasts. He was comfortable and always present to those around him, yet he was constantly on the move and in isolation. Jesus stood out because he was unlike any of the teachers of the day, unlike any human who ever lived. He lived out complete faithfulness to his Father, and he actually finished at the cross with less followers than when he gave this sermon. The vast majority of the people rejected him and his message. And so why would you expect anything different for you? This is what Jesus says. The, the, the servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you also. Why would we expect anything different than to lead a distinct and marginal life? And so we don't go intentionally looking to be weird and different. Like we don't go intentionally being weird for the sake of it. And so... You know, people hate us, but it really just because you're very unpleasant to be around. This life of being and 
doing everything that God has called you to do, it's not going to look appealing to everyone. It shouldn't necessarily look unappealing because we make it that way, but it should look different. And this has massive implications for us in God's mission today, which is, as I said, everything that God is calling us to be and to do. And so if you realize, if you realize that this identity has been given to you on account of nothing you have done, but Christ's perfect obedience and righteousness, and if you realize that the identity is as a marginal and distinct people following the pattern of Jesus, then you can live a life of complete contentment and satisfaction in God's mission in a society where Christianity is on the decline. That's what's happening in Australia and in the West. In post-Christian society, we have to have an understanding of this identity that is not dependent upon circumstances or how popular the church is. This way of life that Jesus talks about is marginal, it's narrow, few find it. It doesn't need to cling to power or claim relevance because it's following a Savior who is supreme over every power and who is completely relevant for every single human being. You know, I'm convinced that many Christians actually live with this surface-level embarrassment that Christianity is increasingly unpopular in society. And so they do all they can to sort of change the message to grow numbers or seem relevant. Not for the glory of God, but to actually vindicate themselves to show that Christianity is popular. You know, it's kind of like that desperate friend in school who's just trying to make himself popular or make something that he believes in popular. Like, hey, come on, or do whatever you want, or buy your lunch. And this just shows the shaky foundation of an identity that is dependent upon function or results that's more sand-like than solid rock. But again, our identity is not dependent upon function. This, this rock that we build upon does not change depending upon our job, the size of our church, or whether following Jesus becomes popular or unpopular in society. This never matters at all for our identity. This rock that is our foundation is Christ and Christ alone. God's complete satisfaction in us that is based entirely upon Christ's righteousness. That makes everything else in this world that we would place value in seem worthless. That's why Paul could say in Philippians, I consider all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything. It doesn't mean that we diminish their value. It just means in comparison to Christ and this solid rock, who cares? This revelation of who we are in Christ will survive every storm of life. Just like Jesus in the boat with his disciples in Matthew 8, where this great storm came over and you know it had to be a great storm because some of these disciples were very experienced fishermen and they would have been out in the water before yet they said help us Jesus we're going to die don't you care and Jesus who's asleep you know, calmly gets up and he just rebukes 
the wind and the waves, and all of a sudden, it's perfectly still and calm. And so it is in our life when Christ is this solid rock. When Christ is our foundation, it will withstand every single storm of life. Let's pray. Father, please, in this very moment, reveal shaky, unhealthy, dangerous foundations that we might have. Reveal them for what they are, that is just pathetic.